0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman. And today I'm reviewing the all 22 film from the Falcons week one loss of the Eagles, as well as answering your listener questions, including some of the positives and negatives that we saw on film from the Falcons offensive line.
1: You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the locked on podcast network, your team every day.
0: So guys, you know me, I'm Aaron Freeman, been covering the Falcons for many years, formerly at Falcfans.com, RIP, still going strong, however, on Twitter, at Falcfans, still putting up content over at the Falcoholic, and of course, the host of this world-renowned Lockdown Falcons podcast, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, right here on the Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day. And today's episode is our All-22 film review. Yes, I did get my hands on some of that black market All-22 and so I will give you some of my thoughts specifically talking about how much the team's schemes on both sides of the ball changed uh, in week one compared to previous years. We'll answer some listener questions that include why the Falcons were so successful early in the game and moving the ball and why that stopped. We'll talk about the return of the dirty birds moniker and what we should read into that. I'll also answer a listener question on whether or not the root of the Falcons blocking issues is that they have the wrong scheme And also answering a question on whether or not the Falcons messed up by drafting safety, Richie Grant in round two, instead of an offensive lineman. But speaking of what the Falcons did in the draft and what the Falcons and other teams should do in the draft, I want to let you guys know that the locked on NFL draft podcast relaunches next Monday on September 20th with brand new hosts, Trevor and Ben moved on to bigger and better opportunities, but we got Eric Crocker, as well as Ryan Tracy, Eric's giving you the scouting. Ryan's bringing the analytics and you can follow the locked on NFL draft podcast on YouTube, the odyssey app, or wherever you get your podcast. So with that being said, let's jump into sort of my general overview of watching the film, uh, getting my hands on some of that black market, all 22 watching the Falcons offense in the first three quarters, the Falcons defense in the first half of the game. And to be honest with you, I didn't have any sort of, particularly profound insights into some of the things I saw in the film. I think pretty much anybody who watched the game saw the main issues that the Falcons had. It was, you know, centered on the Falcons inability, particularly on offense, um, you know, that held back their offense in a lot of ways. Their passing game really struggled to function because that unit couldn't hold up really at all in pass protection. Their running game, despite its hot start, and we'll get into this, why they had such a promising start later on the episode, really couldn't sustain itself beyond the first quarter. And, you know, obviously you're not going to be able to able to have a functional offense if your offensive line plays as poorly as the Falcons did. But at the same time, one of the things I did that stood out to me was sort of Arthur Smith's play calling and his game planning and it was largely dependent on the offensive line being able to execute. And some might term that as a vanilla version of a game plan or, or play calling. And we did see a high degree of play action passing, which is a good thing. But the Falcons really failed to do much of anything with him. Ryan was uh, charted with having 44 yards passing off of play action, according to pro football focus. And 16 of those yards came on the very first snap of the game on a throw to Calvin Ridley. Ryan had 10 more passes, 10 more play action passes thereafter and only gained 28 yards. And that number should be somewhere in the hundreds. So you're talking about easily, you know, 80 plus yards that the Falcons left on the field, uh, largely thanks to their offensive line, not being able to hold up in those situations and Matt Ryan missing throws, throwing check downs in those situations. And one of the reasons why you want to run play action is because it's supposed to slow down opposing teams, pass rushers because they're King on the run. And that was not particularly effective for the Falcons this past Sunday. But, you know, one of the things that stood out to me with Arthur Smith's game planning is that some of the things that he did was, reminiscent of some of the things that Dirk Cutter did last year and some of the things that people criticized Dirk Cutter for doing last year including running the ball on second and longs running a lot more max protects where you would get these eight man protections and only two receivers re- releasing into a route and thus limiting the options now I do think with some of those issues Particularly last year, a lot of that stuff was kind of nitpicking with Dirt Cutter and people, um, you know, making mountains out of molehills in terms of those criticisms leveled at Dirt Cutter. Because, again, several other offensive coordinators around the league, those are pretty common practices, relatively common practices among a lot of teams in the league, including Arthur Smith's Tennessee Titans. But I do somewhat wonder how much energy people are going to have going after Arthur Smith as hard for some of those things as they did a year ago with Dirt Cutter. Switching to the defensive side of the ball, again, nothing too profound when watching the film. It did seem like the Eagles were targeting that underneath area uh, on the right side of the field. I think some of that is due to the fact that Jalen Hurts being a right-handed quarterback and it's much easier uh, to get your feet under you and throw quickly to the right side when you're utilizing that quick game uh, than to the left side when you are a right-handed quarterback. And while I won't necessarily use this as the 495th opportunity that I have gone after Dion Jones, it did seem like they were often targeting his zone when it came to covering that flat on a bunch of plays. Now I think some of that was due to the design of the defense and the Falcons schemed it up where they were basically trying to force that sort of check down and having defenders rally to the ball. And so therefore it was part of the design of the play if that meant giving up a six or seven yard catch on those particular things. But while I don't think Dion Jones played particularly great in this game, I do feel like it would be a little bit unfair of me to overly criticize him when I don't think really any defensive players really stood out to me in a major way when I was watching the film. And, you know, another thing that stood out to me when I was watching the film was that the Falcons were doing a lot more disguise in terms of their coverage and, and being a lot more, I guess you could call it exotic when it came to sort of moving their safeties and linebackers and corners all over the place in order to make those disguises. But as we saw that really didn't have that major an impact on Jalen hurts as a passer because he was extremely efficient. And the reason why I bring that up, because it's similar to the situation with Dirk Cutter versus Arthur Smith's play calling. It's the same situation with the defensive play calling, because one of the criticisms that I've heard over the last two years, uh level that the previous coaching staff is that they never did enough disguising. And I don't think that was a fair criticism, especially once Raheem Morris took over the defense midway through 2019. And I think the Falcons thereafter did plenty of disguise, but when, from my charting of the defense, Basically, their their defense was successful by and large when they were able to get effective pressure on the quarterback and was not particularly successful when they weren't able to do that. And I think that probably played a role in why Jalen Hurts looked so good against the Eagles on Sunday. So I feel like that narrative continues. So, you know, it boils down to you can disguise all you want, but if you're not getting home to the quarterback, you know, that extra beat or two that it's supposedly going to take the quarterback to make his read and and make that throw – because of that disguise is fairly inconsequential is the point I'm trying to make. So for me, my biggest takeaway from watching the week one film is that I didn't see this massive upgrade in terms of scheming on either side of the ball that a lot of people were expecting to see from this new regime. Now, again, that was a certain narrative that I think was being pushed over the last several months. Um, and you guys know that I tend to be very skeptical of such narratives because, you know, a decade's worth essentially of watching film has taught me that coaching isn't necessarily magic and you really need guys to be able to draw, to execute the things that you draw up. And that to me was one of the lessons that I learned from the Kyle Shanahan experience, where we look at a coach that was seemingly this genius, know-it-all magical coach. But in reality, when you look at the difference between his success in 2016 versus 2015, a big part of that was having better personnel in 2016 to be able to execute what he was drawing up than what he had in 2015. And it does seem like to me, the thing that I have noticed in the 48 hours or so since Sunday's action is that you have started to see that narrative really shift towards that sort of thing where it's like, you know, before for several months, it was coaching is, is the key to unlocking this team's potential. And now it's going to be, oh, well, you know, they still need some upgrades and talents. And so, you know, it boils down to the eye in the sky doesn't lie. And that's part of the reason why you tend to hear me saying, let's pump the brakes on, on certain offseason hype and off season narratives. Uh, until we actually get to see uh, you know, these things in action. So this isn't necessarily me writing off this coaching staff and saying, oh, they're bad. They're no better than Dirk Cutter. They're no better than Raheem Morris. I'm just saying like after several months of hearing various people talk about how the coaching staff was essentially, as they often seem to be describing, would magically fix all these problems that existed. That clearly was not the case in week one. And we're just going to have to wait and see how long it takes for this so-called magic to kick in. And given how petty and smug I am, you know, I'm like, hmm, certainly didn't happen in week one, but maybe it happens in week two. So we'll see about that. And with that being said, we'll continue today's Locked on Falcons All 22 review from week one, answering some listener questions, including getting into the nitty gritty of why the Falcons offense started strong and then stagnated, as well as the various personnel groupings that they utilized in order to make that successful. But before we get there, guys, I gotta let you know that Bet Online is back better than ever. All eyes are now on the gridiron as teams are back to start another football season. And as always, BetOnline is your number one spot for all the pro and college football action this season. With a new updated website and interface and even more odds, props, and contests, BetOnline.ag continues to be that number one source for everything football. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today with promo code Locked On for a 50% welcome bonus. Maybe you want to use some of that bonus money to bet on Thursday night as you keep an eye on this New York Giants team that is facing Washington. Washington is currently by three and a half points. The Falcons, of course, play the Giants in week three, but only after they take on Tampa Bay, who are currently the 12 and a half point favorites entering week two. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports from football, basketball, boxing, right all the way to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait and take advantage of all the amazing offers available for this 2021 season. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts.
1: They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast.
0: Part of the Locked
1: On Podcast Network. Your team, every day.
0: So our first question comes from For sake at Sake on Twitter. He asks, Atlanta's offense had the most diverse personnel groupings of any team in week one. Could this explain some of the pre snaps penalties since Arthur Smith wouldn't likely have shown those looks in preseason. I don't think more starter reps in preseason would have helped this case in this case. Also, if Jalen Mayfield is so bad, how do we count for the success of Atlanta's first quarter offense? Could it be a lack of balance due to game situations, early down penalties and playing from behind, put them in a must pass situation. Thanks. So I would be skeptical of the whole Penalties things. Because when you look at who was committing the pre snap penalties, you had an illegal formation on Kyle Pitts. You had a false start on Drew Dahlman. You had two false starts from Jalen Mayfield. And you had a legal formation from Marlon Davidson. What do all these players have in common? They're all young, relatively inexperienced players. So I think it's probably easier to chalk this up to young players making mental mistakes than it is to sort of say that differing personnel groupings were the cause of it and they weren't necessarily prepared for it or whatever. That feels like an unnecessary step that you don't necessarily. Need to make as for the Falcons' first quarter success. I think a lot of it was the Falcons taking advantage of the Eagles' relatively light boxes, stemming from the Eagles' decision to deploy a lot of cover two uh, coverages and, and zone stuff under defense, according to Jonathan Gannon, who comes from that Colt staff that Matt Eberflus highly utilizes. Uh, that cover two look on defense from Indianapolis, of course, Nick Sirianni comes from that Colt staff as well. So in terms of what Falconsake sake is referring to in terms of diverse personnel comes from something that Josh Kendall of the athletic tweeted on Monday. He said the Falcons were the only team in the NFL to run double digit snaps out of four personnel groupings in week one so far 17 and 11 personnel 19 and 12 personnel 11 and 21 personnel 12 and 22 personnel. The rest of the league ran 22 total snaps out of 22 personnel and I think a lot of their rushing success was owed to running out of a lot of that 12 21 and, and twenty-two personnel. And for those that don't know, those numbers refer to the number of running backs and tight ends on the field. So twelve personnel is one running back and two tight ends. Twenty-one is two running backs and one tight end. Twenty-two is two running backs, two tight ends. And with that second running back often being a fullback, although there was a couple of plays essentially on that first drive where. Cordero Patterson was essentially functioning as the second running back. But to be technical, because a lot of this is difficult to count because, you know, I wonder if Josh's numbers are counting certain 12 personnel groupings that were technically 13 personnel where the Falcons had three tight ends because Kyle Pitts on those particular instances was split out wide in the slot and basically functioning as no different than a wide receiver in those situations. So what happens when you have those personnel groupings is that you're getting seven or even eight blockers, right? With, um, 12 or 21 personnel, you're getting the five offensive linemen, plus a fullback, plus the tight ends with 22 personnel. You're getting eight blockers, the two running or the fullback and the two tight ends in addition to the five offensive linemen. And what happened was Philadelphia was consistently presenting seven man boxes due to their cover two front. And in those situations, when you have seven or eight blockers, if you can get a hat on a hat, you're going to generally have a lot of success running the football. And this is one of the reasons why the cover three defense has been so in vogue over the last decade in the NFL, because it kind of has that balance that you can get the, ability to defend the deep ball with three deep defenders, but you also are allowed to drop one of those secondary players into the box as that eighth run defender, which traditionally was a strong safety like a Keanu Neal on those early downs that can help you stop the run. And you don't necessarily have that option when you play a cover two where you have two deep safeties. And oftentimes you're dropping one of your linebackers deep, at least in coverage situations uh, to cover that deep middle third. And so you can tend to present soft boxes. Now, one of the things that You've seen a quote unquote innovation from people like Brandon Staley last year with the Rams as they essentially play that split safety coverage that cover two type of looks and cover four and whatnot. And they essentially don't really care that much about stopping the run because they're basically, you know, focus on not giving up the pass plays, which is where offenses are generally bread and buttered as well as relying heavily on their disruptive defensive line to sort of take care of the business of stopping the run up front rather than bringing in extra numbers. But generally speaking, rushing success in the NFL is about the offense and or defense's ability to execute on those plays and often their ability to get. Favorable number situations, right? It's about how many defenders can the defense get in the box so that you can't get a hat on a hat. How many, you know, blockers can you get on an offense side of perspective on things, and so that you can get a hat on a hat, and then basically your running back is is ten, fifteen yards down the field before he has to worry about a defender because everybody's blocked up. So. For the Falcons, I think early in the game that worked into their favor, of course, until they got into the red zone because it becomes a little bit harder to get that numbers advantage once the field gets condensed. And then often you're much more relying on your offensive line executing their individual blocks than really getting that numbers advantage from the extra blockers from a fullback and tight in and whatnot. And it's easier for, you know, you have a lot more players playing closer to the line of scrimmage. So those safeties aren't deep. They're not 15, 20 yards down the field. They're like, five, you know, the 10 yards off the ball. And so they can fill against the run much easier. And I think also, in addition to that, as the game wore on, the Eagles defensive line was able to assert themselves more in those types of red zone situations, as well as later in the game in quarters two, three, and four to sort of negate those individual matchups going back to what we talked about the Rams doing uh, and in negating that numbers advantage that the Falcons have. So going back to your question about Jalen Mayfield specifically, his run blocking great out well for pro football focus rewatching the film. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say he was great as a run blocker, but he certainly wasn't poor. And when it came to executing his assignments, I think for the most part, he was doing that when I was watching the game and looking at all the blown blocks that guys were having. I saw a lot more Jake Matthews, Chris Lindstrom and Kayla McGarry blowing blocks than I did Jalen Mayfield and Matt Hennessy. And so I think that's reflective in their pro football focus grades, which is why Mayfield and Hennessy graded out better as run blockers than those other three guys. So if you want to put a positive spin on those guys performances where I think you can say you know Mayfield and Hennessy in addition to Caleb McGarry had the most difficulties in pass protection at least with Mayfield and Hennessy they were able to I won't say balance things off but at least give you some positives as run blockers but as you know part of the issue that the Falcons dealt with in this game stemmed from their inability to hold up and pass protection, really in any circumstances, as I mentioned earlier in the episode and it's, you know, whether they're running play action, whether they're running a straight drop back passing game. And thus I think their play calling and their game planning, as I mentioned earlier, was fairly conservative and vanilla, you know, to reflect that. And so they were basically like, We can't, we can only do X, we can't do Y, and we can't do Z because our offensive line can't hold up. And I think that, you know, is somewhat a red flag in regards to Arthur Smith. You know, I'm not going to necessarily, again, be too harsh off of one game, but that was a concern of mine surrounding Smith when we hired him. And we discussed this back on the podcast way back in January when I went through the film from his days in Tennessee and, and gave my assessment of what his offense were. And I think a lot of the things that a lot of question marks we had in terms of Arthur Smith, you know, and this was something that Matt Carrolly mentioned um, on yesterday's episode was, you know, the first thing was, you know, some of the vanilla route combinations um, you know, I think some of the issues that he had was, you know, the second thing being his ability to scheme up explosive plays because a lot of their explosive plays through the passing game were largely centered around, you know, throwing crossing routes to A.J. Brown and him turning, you know, 15 yard throws, 12 yard throws into 40 yard gains after the catch. The other issue was, you know, there were concerns about Arthur Smith's ability to to dial up a, a consistent and reliable offense without a strong running game. And obviously in Tennessee, that was spearheaded by Derrick Henry. And we saw in last year's playoff loss to the Ravens that they were able to successfully shut down Derrick Henry uh, in that game. And the Titans offense really didn't have a whole lot going for them outside of that one drive where A.J. Brown was basically beating Marlon Humphrey. And then once Marlon Humphrey got his act together after that drive, like Tennessee really didn't have a ton of success moving the ball. And so I think those were three issues that did rear their ugly heads on Sunday like I wouldn't I won't go too hard on him on the the vanilla routes or whatever because again I think more the issue was that Matt Ryan just didn't have enough time to throw and some of those routes just didn't have the time to develop or whatnot Um, and to me it wasn't as blatant as we have seen in the past with dirt cutter so I I don't feel like I will hammer him for that but the other two issues you know not being able to have a successful offense without running the ball consistently and not being able to dial up explosive plays you know through the design of the play and, and relying too much much on individual playmakers making plays. You know, I think those were two legitimate issues that the Falcons struggled with on Sunday. And we got more to come on today's locked on Falcons podcast talking about you know, why the Falcons are once again the dirty birds, as well as talking about whether or not their blocking issues are related to their scheme and whether or not they should have made some differing draft choices in rounds two and three that may have potentially prevented some of these offensive line issues. But, you know, talking about the issues that they had on Sunday, next Sunday, you know what doesn't have to be an issue, having that one device that lets you catch the game live, another device that lets you stream your favorite shows while you're watching sports highlights on your film, and you've got your father's brothers, cousins, former roommate Deborah's login for your preferred streaming service. I want to tell you about a simple way where you can get all your entertainment that you love without any of the hassle and a great way to finally get your TV together. And, of course, it's called Direct TV Stream. It brings you the live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes, no need to buy another device ever again. And the best part, besides not having to borrow Deborah's login, is that there's no Annual contract. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That DirectTV.com compatible device required content varies by package. Now, we saw the Falcons offensive line get pushed around versus Philly, and we know that can't happen against Tampa Bay. So I'm thinking that these guys could use a little bit more protein, and Built Bar can provide it, and they can do so without having to sacrifice flavor. Built Bars, of course, are the best-tasting protein bar, and they have 11 delicious flavors. I feel like Jake Matthews might be a peanut butter brownie type of guy. Chris Lindstrom likes strawberry. Jalen Mayfield probably rocks with cookies and cream. Matt Hennessy likes double chocolate. And Caleb McGarry's big fan of Cherry Barsia. But there's something for everyone, including salted caramel, mint, brownie, raspberry, and more. Try them all with a mixed box. Built Bars are great because they taste just like a candy bar containing 100% real chocolate, but you get none of the guilt because they're healthy too. Since They're low in sugar, low in calories, high in protein, high in fiber. Go order some for yourself or ship them to help the guys out in Flowery Branch by heading over to the website at built.com. Use the promo code LOCK 15 to get 15% off your first order. That's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at built.com. So our first question comes from Jim C. He sent an email saying, I would appreciate your thoughts on the Falcons. Once again, embracing the dirty birds label. I think such slogans are silly in professional sports and become lucrative targets for opposing fans and players. Nothing feels better to an opposing player than to break out into a lame interpretation of the Dirty Bird dance of the Dan Reeves era when he scores a touchdown in Atlanta just adds to the humiliation. Just feel that the team that spots light a clever descriptor, remember the grit splits over talent on the team is in for a long year. What do you think? Uh that's from Jim C. Well you know, I feel like every team has marketing departments, which means that they create market and create and market hashtags and slogans. And so the idea that you have those or that they just simply exist is a problem. You know, that doesn't really fly for me. You know, I can't necessarily speak to the humiliation either. You know, how how a player celebrates a touchdown doesn't really bother me personally. I think if you're taking player celebrations personally, I I think you got some issues you got to work through Jim. And again, we all got issues. I I certainly got issues. I got to work through, but one of them is not worrying about touchdown dances. I feel like if you're, you know, I, I tend to get upset by the player scoring a touchdown, not how he celebrates it as for the dirty bird label. You know, I don't spend a ton of, energy or time worrying about various slogans, as you might say, you know, I didn't particularly like the in brotherhood slogan or label. um, But that was mostly because I thought it was extremely generic. It's not really a brand name that represents the Falcons in any meaningful way like rise up or dirty birds does. I mean, if you're going to be generic, at least invoke something specifically about the team like Raider nation or go bucks. So, um, you know, the dirty bird well works on that level for me, you know, my questions about utilizing dirty bold are generally twofold, the first being it kind of represents a very specific season versus an era in my eyes, it, that being that 98 season. And I guess my issue is while I certainly have fond memories for that specific year, I'm not necessarily nostalgic for that era of Falcons football, because to me, it kind of represents the dirty birds being linked to. That one year in 1998 with Jamal Anderson and and not really being linked to the Dan Reeves era as a whole, because like I kind of link it between like those early years where the Dirty Birds era with Jamal Anderson was the guy. And then after once Vic arrived, it became the Vic era. Now, maybe that's an arbitrary distinction for me, but again, I'm not particularly nostalgic over that previous era because The 98 season is like an island of goodness surrounded by a sea of mediocrity, which to me was an issue that constantly plagued the Falcons in the pre-blank era. And the second is kind of related to the fact that this is seemingly the first time that Arthur Blank since buying the team in 2002 has seemed to embrace the pre-blank era or the Rankin-Smith era Falcons those first 35 years not to say that Blank has sort of outright rejected that history but he's always kind of kept it at arm's length and and always kind of treated it like oh yeah like that history is cool and all but like let's talk about what's going on now let's talk about the future of this team and it really has been about the current or future era you know obviously the the time that he's owned the team and said like let that old stuff you know leave that aside so I, I find it interesting that the team has decided to do this now of all times and we can speculate why that is. Perhaps it's to sort of invoke the last time the team was a Super Bowl contender without actually invoking the last time the team was a Super Bowl contender for what I think is obvious reasons. So I find it interesting, but otherwise I don't really care that much. You know, I'm pretty neutral to the whole idea of hashtag dirty birds. Our last question comes from Jerron Jay. He got some offensive line questions for me. He says, do you think at this stage in Matt's career, it would have been a better move to go to a power system with bigger, heavier linemen instead of sticking with the West coast system with smaller, quicker linemen. This could be short-sighted on my part, but it seems that Matt would do better with bigger guys in front of him. Also, do you think we should have taken a lineman in the second round instead of Richie Grant or And going back to your Mayfield rant after the draft, if we were going to draft a left guard in the third, do you think it would have been better to draft someone who actually had experience at the position? So essentially to answer your last question first, you can go back and listen to that rant, which was the May 5th episode where I did a and a um, where I basically outlined the reasons why I was questioning the, the, the selection of Jalen Mayfield. And a lot of it was because I felt like there were five better options that the Falcons could have drafted at that position. At pick number 68, that would have been better options for them. And to remind you, those guys were White, Davis, Kendrick Green, Bing Cleveland, Quinn Miners, and Royce Newman. And almost every single one of those guys, every one of those guys had experience playing left or right guard in college and 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 whatnot, as far as round two i don 't think drafting an offensive lineman in round two was the issue. You know I think the only real good option they could have taken in round two was Landon Dickerson, and they could have only taken him if they had stayed put at that pick thirty five because they wound up trading back to pick forty and to take Richie Grant, and the Eagles wound up taking Dickerson at pick thirty seven so he wasn 't even on the board when Grant was there um. But the problem with drafting Dickerson, who was arguably the best pure interior offensive lineman in draft, Rashawn Slater was arguably the best interior offensive lineman, but he played tackle in college. Um, But Dickerson would have been a great fit for Atlanta. But the problem that Dickerson had was that he had health and injury red flags lingering from multiple injuries he had in college. That was the core reason why he wasn't a first round pick that a lot of people thought he had the talent to be uh, because he tore his ACL at the end of this past season at Alabama. And frankly... You know, if you drafted him, his recovery timetable was not going to allow him to, at least in Atlanta, start for them at left guard because he basically only returned to practice coming off that ACL tear the Monday after the preseason ended. So he would have never been able to compete for a starting job at all this summer. So he wouldn't have solved your problem at left guard. He would have just been a sort of red shirt option for you, which is what he wound up being for the Eagles, who essentially are probably going to stash him for a year and then have him replace Jason Kelsey as their starting center next year given that most people seem to expect Kelsey to retire after the season. So getting back to your first question in regards to Matt Ryan playing behind a different type of offensive line, you know, I don't think that really matters when it comes to the passing game, you know, what your blocking scheme you have on the offensive line is really only important to your run game, right? You know, big guys, small guys, athletic guy, you know, if you have big, stiff guys, right, you know, they're going to have trouble against athletic, quicker defensive linemen. If you have smaller athletic guys, they're going to have problems with bigger, more powerful guys. There's there's no sort of thing that's going to magically solve the problem. You just need to get good players, whether they're, you're going with more of that power scheme or that more of that zone blocking scheme that the Falcons have. Now, looking at the power scheme or gap scheme versus the zone blocking scheme, you know, again, I think that's fairly inconsequential when it comes to to what you decide to do, it just kind of all depends on your personnel. And you can have a West Coast offense that has those bigger, more powerful offensive line. I mean, that's what the Raiders had when John Gruden first arrived there. And they had guys like Rodney Hudson and Gabe Jackson and Kaleccio Semili, etc. cetera, uh, running a West Coast offense with more of that bigger road grading power offensive line. But the main reasons why the Falcons continue to run a zone blocking scheme because it best fits their personnel. Really none of their current starters would I think thrive in 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 a power scheme. It's not to say that they would be poor in that scheme, but in the majority of cases, not all the cases of their five starters, you'd be putting square pegs into round holes. And so you would have to deal with that issue by completely revamping your offensive line personnel, which is not something that you're going to be able to do overnight. And I don't see the benefit of going through multiple years of growing pains, trying to completely tear down and and rebuild this offensive line. That's not going to shorten your timeline with Matt Ryan, you know, and I think the the reason why you continue to integrate the outside zone scheme is it integrates seamlessly with the type of play action concepts that the Falcons under Arthur Smith want to run. You know, the easiest way of explaining it is it's easier to sell those misdirection plays off the bootlegs and rollouts off that stretch run play that is the bread and butter run play of the outside zone scheme than it is trying to sell similar stuff off of the power O, which is the bread and butter uh, run play of the gap scheme. So, long story short, I don't think the issue is that the Falcons have chosen the wrong scheme to run. It's just that they don't have players good enough to run their scheme as they have chosen it. And I think that gets to the core issue that you've heard me, you know, rant about ad nauseum. People focus too much on sort of what is the scheme that's going to magically fix the thing. And it not is, they don't spend enough time thinking about the players that you need to execute. Said scheme. You can run anything. I'm being somewhat hyperbolic when I say this, but you know, I'll sit here and say like you can run the triple option in the NFL and have success in it if you have the right players. You go out there and get Cam Newton and Terrell Pryor as your QB one and QB two and you could probably run the triple option pretty effectively in the NFL, right? You know, if you have the right personnel. I'm not sitting here saying you're, you're gonna win a Super Bowl doing it, but like, you know, you could probably be a perennial playoff team if you had the right personnel to run it. So to me it's not really about the scheme that you run, it's about the personnel that you have and whether or not you can coach those person that personnel to execute set scheme. So there you guys have it. On today's week one, all 22, we were able to get our hands on that film. And so you don't have to wait until next week to get my thoughts on the all 22. Um, and you don't have to wait next week in order to give your thoughts on who's going to win this weekend. Because of course, you can join the Locked On Falcons, run your pool, and if you're looking for a link to join our pick'em pool this year, where you can win bragging rights as well as a free jersey, you can go to the lockdown Falcons Twitter page and find the pin tweet and and click on that link and go to runyourpool.com to join our pick'em league. so that you can get on this action. You might have missed this first week, but you know, certainly I m- messed up. Pretty badly picking games this first week, so you know you just got to pick a couple of good ones in week two, and you already surpassed me on the on the uh, leaderboard uh, there. So uh, you know you'll get those bragging rights uh, pretty easily. But we'll we'll duck out of here by you know giving one more plug to the Locked On Bets podcast. You guys hear me talk about them every day on the podcast. That, you know that when you after you go to BetOnline.ag and you're looking for bets uh, and you use that promo code Locked On, you're looking for bets to win you money. Of course, Locked On Bets is the best place to go to get those daily picks from handicapping expert lee sterling as well as lee's lock of the day follow the locked on bench podcast brought to you by BetOnline.ag, on the odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast so if you guys want to send in questions for future q a's of course you can do so by hitting me up at locked at mail.com you can send them into the twitter or facebook page which is of course locked on falcons appreciate it guys We'll be back tomorrow with a crossover Thursday uh, featuring one of the Locked On Box hosts, David Harrison. Until then.
1: Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast.